So, Bakr Tov, good morning, everybody. So, we, as we start the parishes of Shmois, Va'era, Bob, Shalach, I thought that would be an opportunity to, to start talking about what, a series called The Ingredients of Nationhood. What, are, what does it mean to become a nation? What are the necessary components to be able to get to that point? And um, as we watch the nation of Israel being formed into a nation by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which has ultimately served as a model for many other groups, well, many other groups, you know, when, uh, when America was seeking independence in the Revolutionary War, one of the models they looked at was Exodus, the civil rights movement. Many times Martin Luther King used Exodus as one of the models for freedom. It is a universal model for anybody who has anything to do with religion, appreciates the Bible. It's become the basic model. And the question is, is that at a, st- at a stage in history where we are perhaps deeply concerned for the possible loss of that when we're watching a society which is really fraying at the edges in the middle, one would wonder if it's necessary to re-engage what it was that created nations in order to be able to appreciate it and perhaps not lose all that story, what it's supposed to be. So the first, the first of these ideas, the first of these lectures is on the topic of um, morality, the ingredients of nationhood, what is, is morality. Um, so what does that look like? What, is, what does that mean? So it actually is, it goes back to an interesting debate that was had in the 1950s and 60s um, on this particular topic. And um, actually, perhaps I would like to start off with the, fir- the second presenter first. And that is, if you take a look at page two, his name is Patrick Arthur Devlin. Lord Devlin, at the time it was Justice Devlin, very famous jurist in England, a judge. And he was, um, he was involved in the, nine, in the 1959, presented a particular lecture on the role, of go- the role of morals in governmental policy. He gave a 1959 lecture. Later on, in his, um, later on he's quoted in 1965, the, the following in Source 3, where he discusses the following example. He says, um, he's, he's talking about uh, morality as a, um, as a government prerogative. And he, say, he points out um, the following. The, let's take a look at the, where it is um, on, let's say, take a look at the, about the fifth line from the bottom where it says with the, from, the, from the full stop from the period, but an established morality is as necessary as good government to the welfare of society. Societies disintegrate from within more frequently than they are broken up by external pressures. Interesting observation historically. There is disintegration where no common morality is observed, and history shows that the loosening of moral bonds is often the first stage of disintegration, so that society is justified in taking the same steps to preserve the moral code as it does to preserve its government. The suppression of vice is as much the law's business as the suppression of subversive activities. So essentially, if you have a government or a society which no longer has a moral code, no longer has one shared moral compass, that society essentially is on the route for disintegration. Slowly but surely it will fall apart as different forces within that country will fight against each other and vie for power because in order to be able to survive, you need to be able to have a shared moral code which is enforced by the government. So it sounds wonderful in theory. The complication is, is that actually this is a matter of public debate And in the early 1960s, um, an opponent rose to the podium. 
His name was a prof uh, H. L. A. Hart, who was, this is a famous debate between H. L. A. Hart and Lord Devlin, he was Justice Devlin at the time, where a professor of jurisprudence at Cambridge, um, law professor, gets up and gave a series of lectures in which he dismisses Lord Devlin's view of the world. And this is particularly difficult around the topic of, at the time, which was a great debate in law, which was homosexuality. And he, has, and he in a number of lectures, and then later on turned into, into a book, which was called Law, Liberty and Morality. Just a quote in the first source, although the concept of law Encyclopedia Britannica is principally a work of legal philosophy, it contains some important discussions of the topics in political and moral philosophy. Hart's first major contribution to political philosophy occurred in his 1955 essay, Are There Any Natural Rights? In that essay, he briefly introduced a theory of political ob obligation that has come to be known as the principle of fair play. Um, that is, he contended, that anyone who benefits greatly from the, prayer, the presence of some institution is morally required to bear commensurate share of the burden sustaining the institution's existence, although the principle of fair play has often come under attack in the decades since Hart's fleeting, uh, fle fleetingly propounded it. This would be fantastic for shul membership. Um, the theory continues to be espoused by some present-day political philosophers, but as a form of basic ethics. Then he goes further, that goes further. Hart's most sustained entry into political disputation occurred in 1963 with the publication of Law, Liberty and Morality. He wrote in the, in, the, in the liberal tradition of English philosopher and economist John Stuart Mill in arguing that homosexual intercourse between consenting adults should not be legally prescribed, invoking and defending Mill's harm principle, which maintains no activity can legitimately be outlawed unless the activity causes non-trivial harm to someone else other than the participants. So that what he's saying essentially is, is that how can society, how can a government prescribe and also mandate a moral code if there, if, it, if there is an act which is consensual, if there is something which occurs which doesn't harm anybody else, how does society have the right to hoist morals above them and upon them? He's quoting John Stuart Mill because this goes back to the very basic theory of utilitarianism. Just to appreciate what utilitarianism is in the next entry, utilitarianism is, a nor is normative ethics, a tradition stemming from the late 18th and 19th century English philosophers and economists Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, according to which an action or a type of action is right if it tends to promote happiness or pleasure and wrong if it tends to promote unhappiness or pain, not just for the performer of the action, but also for everyone else affected by it. Utilitarianism is a, spe is a species of consequentialism, the general doctrine in ethics that, uh, that, that actions should be evaluated on the basis of their consequences. So um, just to appreciate what that means to say is, therefore we have to analyze any action and see its impact on those around us and on society as a whole. And if it is the greatest good for the greatest amount of people, it would be acceptable, if not, not. So as an, so as an example, therefore, in utilitarianism, is murder allowed? No, because if the murder would be allowed, then society would devolve and it would not, it would, it would not be an effect of society. So that should be illegal. But you get into what we'll call the more moral aspects of society when it comes to something which is a little more, a little more subtle, perhaps not. The example being in the 1960s was homosexuality, whether the government had the right to, 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 discuss, to, to, uh, to have a, a role in mandating. Um, law on this, but there's other aspects of society which are also worthwhile considering. This is, this is also worthwhile considering when it comes to other types of laws, when it comes to, let's say, the adultery law, the enforcement of it. It's interesting to look at the history of that throughout Europe and in, uh, 
in America. Uh, and this was the debate that was had. Now, it's interesting. Rav Sachs actually has a very beautiful essay on this topic. And he points out that HLA Hart ultimately won the day. Right? Today, governments have moved away from mandating anything which relates to, uh, to moral codes. They step back to the what we'll, we'll call the principles of utilitarianism. The, the role of the government is to create a space which is devoid of harm, a safe place for people to live and coexist. And that's what the government will mandate. However, they do not mandate something which is moral. Now, part of the difficulty of morality is whose morality. Right? And we've seen throughout, uh, throughout the, uh, history that certain governments have used morality in very nefarious and terrible ways against its people. But be it as it may, society in general has seceded from religious or moral code beyond utilitarianism in general. So HLA Hart has become the accepted norm within societies. And Rabbi Sachs's observation, which is a very beautiful observation, is that Lord Devlin was a judge. HLA Hart was a professor. In the realm of ideas, it's very wonderful to say this, but what perhaps HLA Hart was thinking, Lord Devlin was seeing in court. Meaning to say, here he saw the coming apart of society as morals moved away from the centerpiece of government. And it only takes time. The effect of the argument that Rao Sachs makes is that over time we will see the impact of a society without morals. We will see what that society devolves into and we are watching a society which is only bound together by not harming each other and that society disintegrating beneath our feet, which is what, what's happening right now, which is a very profound observation into the human condition and into systems of government, which is the, the failing of democracy, which we have to discuss. Yes? Yeah, so, so, yeah, uh, I think you answered part of Right, so it becomes complicated. It's all, it's all, it's all subjective, depends on your... Well, that's why you need to have an objective, uh, an objective law book, which is why we have the Bible, but not everybody would agree to that necessarily. But, as an, but let's, let's say, for example, as an, as an example, let's talk about jealousy. Let's talk about lashonara, foul uh, you know, language against other people. Mm -hmm. So technically speaking, you could argue that perhaps it's not necessarily creating harm, right? You could say, well, as long as you act correctly, right? You may be jealous all you want, but as long as you're not stealing, as long as you're not embezzling, defrauding, then in those cases, it's fine, right? Why should government, why should society require you to think or feel in particular ways? The Torah doesn't view things that way at all, right? Now, you may say, well, it's going to lead to, but that's ultimately as a byproduct of, you, um, of John Stuart Mill's perspective. But at the end of the day, does, does society have to govern Lashon Hara as an example? And, and H.L.A. Hart would say, absolutely not. Lord Devlin would say, well, that might be a moral principle that we have to, the government would have to perhaps enforce. To me. One place, apropos what Eddie was saying, we get into, and that's come up already, homosexuality, wherever you stand, the point is harm. So you had the baker who didn't want to bake the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he being harmed? No, that's that's the next that's the next step. This next step is is whether a person makes decisions about this that impacts their business. That's the next step. That's after this. The question is is does the government have the law? Now, by the way, it can go very hard in the other direction. You have to realize that just in the in the decade in which Lord Devlin was was talking, you know, uh, Turing committed suicide. Why did he commit suicide? Because he was 
chemically sterilized as um, because of his homosexuality. Just to appreciate this, it's a complicated topic. There's no, there's no, there's no simple answers in this when it comes down to this. Very, very complex discussion. But be it as it may, this is a discussion worth having. So I'd like to, I'd like to get into the Torah perspective on this. It sounds like hearts are great underpinning for what's, what was going to become like hedonistic progressives or progressive hedonists. I'm not sure what thing, what's the right answer. Right. So, so well, it's, what's interesting is what happens in the absence of this. Meaning what happens when you create a safe society, when your government has created the space where nobody's harming each other. So what fills that vacuum? So what drives a person? Which gets down to a very, very profound insight. I'd like to, to, to share an insight in two directions. One is from the, the perspective of Rav Cook, and the other one is from Rav Sasson, Rav Co Cohen. So uh, let, let's start off with, um, with Rav Cook, and then we'll move our way into um, Rav, Co uh, Rav Sasson for a moment. So I'd like to, to, to shift to page five for a moment. This is from Olastriya. Olastriya is a compendium. It's a two-volume compendium of the ideas of Rav Cook on the Siddur. Now, he didn't write on the Siddur per se. What he did was he taught many different topics throughout the course of his life, and his Talmud and his son put them together on the Siddur, depending on where you talk about them. So, you know, the various things were like a, you know, a, a flowing conversation that he had as he was walking down the river, and people recorded that, and they put it in down, and that was on a Bekoach, and then, they, they, and then he talked to, commented on the Gomorrah in various parts of Twitter, and they, they were taken from Einaya, which he wrote, and they put it on the Siddur, various different ideas and essays that he wrote throughout his life, and they put it together. So this is a very short essay which is had in his introduction to the Haggadah Shal Pesach, Sometimes the Agarashal Pesach is printed separately, but it's actually really part of this sefer called Alasri. Yeah, this is the second volume. And he says the following, the following observation, a very beautiful observation. He says the following. Elu HaShanim, and it's very, very beautiful to just um, listen to his language, because this is his, Rav Cook speaking, and the po poetry is incredibly beautiful. So he says in, in the following. Elu HaShanim HaSamanim Lanu Eschaga Gula Chaga Pesach. These... These years or these moments in time, which are representative, symbolize our uh, days of Chaga Pesach, Chaga Gula. So I think what he's saying as well is that we're at a time in history which is moving towards a Pesach. Right? We're at a time in history where we're seeing the Gula sprouting. Okay? Remember, Rav Cook is living at this point in time in the 19, early 1900s. Right? So you see, you see something is afoot. Zman Chay Rasun, our time of, P, of freedom, Villa Dorois. He said, I'd like to understand two concepts which are interdependent. And they are the topic of this essay, which is our freedom, and and burning of chametz. Why is the festival we talk about freedom related to the burning of the leaven? What do the two have to do with each other? The, um, the best answer is, there are two prerequisites for redemption. Hacherus at Haatzmis, the freedom itself. Cherus aguf mikol shibud zar, that the body is not going to be subjugated by any foreign or artificial power. Mikol shibud hakofe es tselem ha'elokim asher bo'adam liyos meshubad lakol koach ashur morida es erakoi tiferes kudulasoi vahadras kodshoi. That nothing is going to be prescribing what the, a person should be doing. But to get to a point where a person is truly free to do what it is that they want, it needs to come from a space of spiritual freedom. The freedom of the spirit, which, listen to the beautiful language over here, 
Right, this freedom of the spirit is what allows a person to escape or to walk along the straight path with a level of, of assurance, with a level of, so to speak, of independence. A person or a nation cannot arrive at freedom from external or internal force. It can only be achieved when a person is able to burn from within them anything which is going to also be, we'll call it prescribing their action. That is, we'll call their leaven internally. Which is the leaven in the dough. Which actually becomes more prevalent around the times of Geula, around the times of redemption. Which means he's saying that now the Sa'or Sheba Isa is more dangerous, is more consequential at this point in, in, in Jewish history. So what Rav Kook is talking about is, is a notion of two types of freedom. I can be free from an external force or I can be free from an internal force. And so just to, just to appreciate this, this actually goes back to a very famous concept which is um, Kant talks about, um, but um, Immanuel Kant, but it, it's later on publicized or, or uh, popularized by Isaiah Berlin in the 1950s as well. This is after Rav Cook's time. Um, but it is interesting to note the way that he frames it is what he calls as positive versus negative freedom. What is positive versus negative freedom? So if you look in the encyclopedia, of the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy has an excellent essay, a 33-page essay on this particular topic. It's worthwhile reading. And the example it gives is on page 3. Imagine you are driving a car through a town and you come to a fork in the road. You turn left, but no one was forcing you to go, either, or go one way or the other. Next, you come to a crossroads. You turn right, but no one is preventing you from going left or straight on. There's no traffic to speak of and there are no diver diversions or police roadblocks. Okay, so at this point in time, I've had two choices to make and nobody's been forcing me. There's not been any red lights. There's not going to be not, not any barriers across the road. There's, no, there's nothing which is forcing me to go one way or the other. So you seem as a driver to be completely free. But this picture of your situation might change quite dramatically if you were to consider that the reason you went there left and then right is that you're addicted to cigarettes and you're desperate to get the to the tobacconists before it closes. Rather than driving, you feel like you're being driven. As, you urge, uh, as your urge to smoke leads you uncontrollably to turn the wheel to first left and then right. We could also you know, supplant this with coffee, you know, whatever else we want to put in there, you know, or that, that it is that we're desperate to get. Um, moreover, you're perfectly aware that your turning right at the crossroads means you'll probably miss the train. That, that, that was to take you to an appointment you care deeply, uh, uh, care about very much. You long to be free of this irrational desire that is not only threatening your longevity, but also stopping you right now from doing what you think you ought to be doing. So just interesting observation, right? So is there anything forcing me to go left or right? Technically speaking, externally not. There's no police car. There's no roadblock. But internally, yes. So he says the story gives us two contrasting ways of thinking of liberty. On the one hand, one can think of liberty as the absence of obstacles external to the agent. You're free if no one is stopping you from doing whatever you might want to do. In the above story, you appear in the sense to be free. On the other hand, one can think of liberty as the presence of control of the part of the agent. To be free, you must be self-determined, which is to say, you must be able to control your destiny in your own interests. 
in the Bab story, you appear in the sense to be unfree. You are not in control of your destiny. If you are failing, um, if you are failing to control a passion that you yourself would rather be rid of, which is uh, and which is preventing you from realizing what you recognize to be your true interests. One might say that while the first view of liberty is simply about how many doors are open to the agent, on the second view it is more about going through the right door for the right reasons. That's the difference between what he calls negative or positive liberty or freedom. Two different types of freedom. It's interesting to note that in this perspective, society has adopted which form of liberty? If we go back to the original debate, HLA's view of liberty, which is negative freedom, which means to say that there's not going to be anybody in society telling you to do something which is unfair or prescribing something which is, which, which is against your, your personal sense of liberty unless that affects other people, right? However, positive, positive freedom as described by here is not something which the government has a role or is allowed to play a role in. Rav Kook is saying in order to be able to achieve real freedom on Pesach, we need to be able to have both positive and negative and positive liberty. Both the ability to be able to not be controlled by an external force, but also not being controlled by an internal force. Which is why, as you can see, Rav Kook is talking about the marriage of two words, which is chayrus, freedom, and bir chametz. Bir chametz is it, the internal force in this example, by the, in the Stanford um, in encyclopedia, is one's addiction to cigarettes. That's the example that, uh, that's being used. But we can talk about all other kind of addictions or uh, proclivities um, or uh, indulgences we, which we have in our lives. So therefore, Rav Kook goes on a little further to explain back to source, back, back to source five on page five. Ha'evdel in the third paragraph. Ha'evdel ben shebena eved leben chorim. The difference between a slave and a free person. And in a rak ha'evdel ma'amadi. It's not just a, a question of standing or status. This person happens to be incarcerated by another and this one not. You can find a knowledgeable slave who is completely full of the ideas and conceptions of freedom. To the opposite side, a free person, which I would say is a very good estimation of Western society for, to a large degree today. Um, a person's real freedom comes when they are true to their, their own self. And by the way, not as individuals, he expands it to a nation. When they are performing what it is that they are supposed to be performing on this earth, not just floating down the river without harm. And what is that to thine self or be, own self be true is? when one's reflecting that divine spark within oneself. When a person is connected with their internal, we'll call it compass, then they understand that they're living a life of purpose. They're doing something which matters. Which, which, which actually essentially qualifies their value and existence. A person, uh, this is not true by a person, who really spiritually is still subjugated. Then their actions are not. They may be looking like they're driving down the road and taking turns, but ultimately they're missing meetings in their life because of some indulgence which they are subjugated to because they have not yet overcome that freedom. They don't have positive freedom yet. They simply are negatively free.
כי אם במשהו טוב יפה אצל האחר, השולט עליו איזה שליטה שהיא, where a person is under control of somebody or some vice. בין שהיא רשמית, בין שהיא מוסרית, whether it be a, so to speak, based on another person's desires or internally morally. במשהו האחר מוצא שהוא יפה וטוב. ואנחנו לאורה הפנימית של החירוס העצמית הזויס, חירוס חרוס על הלוחויס, אל תקרא חרוס אלא חירוס. So Rav Kook makes a very beautiful observation based on the mission of the last Perikov, Perikavos, where the Gemara says that it describes the writing on the tablets was Charus al-Luchos, it was engraved upon the tablets. And the Mishnah says, don't read the word Charus as engraved, but rather Charus as free. So Rav Kook's observation is, is that we can only really truly arrive at positive liberty, not just negative liberty, if we were to attach ourselves to the guidebook which relates to our mission. Because we're not doing our mission, if we don't have the ability to choose and sublimate ourselves to our mission, then we're sublimating ourselves to something else, which means to say that I'm not actually truly free. If you want to take one step further, just as a, a profound, profound observation, and that is, is if you think about this for a moment, is that what's the difference between engraving and writing? Um, if you, it's sort of like, you, you, let's, let's sort of examine that for a moment. Let's say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu had taken out a permanent marker, right? And there's the tablets, you know, the marble, and there's a p written in permanent marker upon it, is, you know, the Aserzadirus, right? So, you know, perhaps not what we would have imagined it, but what's the difference between that inherently and, and the engraving? The answer is, is that when you write on something, you are taking a, a artificial, external substance and you are superimposing it upon the natural substance, right? So I'm taking the marble, and I'll take the permanent marker and I'll write upon it. But that is actually not a reflection of the tablet itself. It's an external one placed upon it, superimposed upon it. Engraving, actually, is the substance itself which is now reflecting the message because the writing is now uh, expression or expressed in the actual substance itself. There's nothing artificial or external to it. Rakuk, what Rakuk is profoundly saying over here is that for a person to truly be free, it can't be that I have some sort of superficial, artificial, superimposed idea which is guiding my life. Right, and that, that my, may be my desire for coffee, my desire for cigarettes, my desire, whatever else it is, which is guiding me. I can turn wherever I want, but I'm not because I don't have a compass. I don't have the control within my own life to be able to get there. Real freedom, charus, is when it needs to be engraved. It's actually an expression of myself. How do I get to that? Well, I need to have a, a real uh, self-awareness campaign. I need to sit down with myself and understand who I am, what I am, what the guidebook to this is. And there's only one guidebook which matches the soul, which is... The Bible, which is the Torah, because if I don't get there, then I'm not actually free to anything else. I need to have something which is telling me what I should be doing, not just what, I no, what, what is, uh, would, would be preventing me from freedom. This idea actually helps understand a very profound perspective, and that is, is as we start learning about the parishes of Shmois, Ba'era, Ba'in B'Shalach, we talk about freedom in Exodus, there's a very interesting observation, and that is, is that we hear about the commandments, there's the, there, are, there is the, the mitzvah of Pesach, which is go, the Torah goes to in great length and distinction in Pasha's boy in Perikud Beis. And it tells us what Pesach is going to look like, and the Korban Pesach, and the Chometz, and Matzah, and the whole business. The, the, the um, Sefer HaChinuch counts no, uh, you know, nine mitzvahs in Pasha's boy. Most of them focused around this, uh, this particular topic. But if you think about it, it's interesting. The moment you start Pesach, you start another festival at the same time almost. And that is is that you start counting towards Shavuos, which seems so strange. Meaning to say, think about this for a moment. We get to Pesach, we're about to celebrate it, and for us in the diaspora, it's even more poignant, is that at the second Seder, where we're trying to finish the Seder, we start counting 
the, the Omer. Now it happens to be that's when we bring the Karban Omer and so on. But ultimately, that is the beginning of, of, the, of the festival of Shavuos. Right, Shavuos is called weeks. Weeks is what we're starting to count. And in fact, Shavuos doesn't actually have its own date. It is 50 days after the, 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 the first day of Pesach. So it's not dated in the Torah itself. So here's an interesting thing. Before I have a chance to even welcome in Pesach and say, you know, have a seat, enjoy yourself, I'm already starting to talk about the next festival, which is really highly insensitive if you think about it. You're like, why couldn't I, why can't I give Pesach its time? At the end of Pesach, you know, the eighth day of Pesach, let's say, we'll start, you know, the day after the seventh day of Pesach, that's when we'll start counting towards Shavuos. Make it six weeks then, okay. You know, but at the end of the day, why is it that the moment that we, that we, we have Pesach, we are, we, we are, we're thinking about Shavuos? So on this, I'm writing for Rav Kohen, says a beautiful idea in Source 6, and he says the following. Hinei in Source 6, Reish's call, Sever HaChinuch Melamedos Anu, Yesod Godol Ma'od. The Sever HaChinuch teaches us, Rabbein Bechai teaches us a beautiful idea. Binyan Sira Sa'amer. Binevayar Stivoren Belshonen. I'm going to try to explain it in our own understanding. Kiyodua, Bepesach Yatsonu Lecherus Olam. On Pesach, we left to freedom. Lemaaseh, that means, Leikar Hadagesh Shel Pesach, Hu Bekach Shechodano Lios Avadim Lefaro Lemitzrayim. So the main point is, Egyptians are not prescribing our lifestyle anymore. Pesach is the light of freedom. Is freedom from the Egyptians the point of the whole program? Is the point is that I exist because nobody can tell me what to do. Well, that, that's okay. That's that's a good starting point. He says, So, okay, this point in time, the day after, you speak to a Hebrew who's just walked out of Egypt. Who are you? I'm not a slave. Okay. And what are you? <laughs> so what are you doing with your life now, now that you're not a slave? Where are you going? What empires are you going to build? What production are you going to give to this world? Freedom tells you what you're not. And any evet, what am I? My and chaya. What's the uh, the content of my life? My mahus sheli. What is my essence? This is not included in what freedom is. In truth, the focus of Pesach was leaving um, subjugation. We did not receive any clarity as Dveikus Ba'ashem Be'elov. We don't, at this point in time, have any, so to speak, real course of action to be connected to God. It was only at Shavuos, 50 days later, that we actually received our mission statements. Okay, so what is it we're supposed to be doing in this world now that we don't have them telling us what we're supposed to be doing? Nimza, it comes out, So on Pesach, we haven't quite yet finished who we are. We've not yet finished all the all the chemicals in, the, in, in this reaction. So essentially what the way that he's arguing the language that we've been using is in Isaiah Berlin's um, perspective is Pesach represented only negative free liberty, whereas Shavuos presents Positive liberty. What are we supposed to be doing as a people, as, as, a, a, as a nation? What are we contributing to this world in our fleeting time upon it? 
And uh, skipping to the next paragraph, he says, This is a tremendously foundational idea. Sometimes a person can think, Perhaps sometimes enough, we aim to the fact that nobody should be controlling us. Nobody should be telling us or prescribing what we should be doing. What happens if you arrive at that? What happens if you arrive at that point in life when nobody's telling you what to do and you, you have what you what it is you want? And we feel so liberated. Like what? Has that contributed to, to our meaning in life? Have we done anything positive? Is that is that has that substantiated why all, all the money that, and love that people invested in us up to this point in time? Not really. This is much higher in this form of freedom. Notice it's a little different to Rav Cook. Rav Cook was saying is that for full freedom, I need to be free of myself and others. Right? As he was saying it's an internal, external. Right? So in order for me to really be free, I can't be subjugated to my indulgences because essentially then the stimuli around me are controlling me. Right? So if, if, I, if I, only appre- I only operate well in good weather, then the weather's controlling me, I'm not controlling myself. Right? That's what a cook is saying. If I'm addicted to coffee, then I'm going to spend my whole life essentially running from Starbucks to Starbucks because that is, uh, and so I, essentially an external stimuli is now controlling me because I'm not able to wedge anything between the stimulus and the response. Right? That's what a cook was saying. For full truth, you need to do beer comments that is internally. What Rav Sasson is saying is a, is a little bit different. He's saying on a more societal level, it sounds like what he's saying, is that in order to be able, I can take away anything which is forcing me from the outside, but then the question is, what am I doing? It's more positive. What, well, for what purpose am I here? Why, why, are, why are we here? And in fact, he draws it further. Not, I did not put this into the sources, but he says, what does a society look like that is governed only by negative freedom, negative liberty? So interesting, such an interesting observation. What is the greatest asset in a society of negative freedom, which is essentially the society we're in for the, for the most part, right, in a, in a liberal democracy. Um, what, what, what is the greatest asset? The answer is money. The reason is so simple is because money is the greatest enabler. Right? If, if I would need to escape anybody telling me what to do, I need to have the ability to do, do what I want when I want it. I want to be able to go, to vo- go on vacation when I want to. I want to go where I want to. I want to buy the types of cars that I want. I want to have the types of houses that I want. And the, what's the greatest enabler for that is money. But then you have lots of people who arrive at the end of that totem pole and they've got all the money they need, which is generally a very fleeting and horizon-moving kind of experience. But let's say a person arrives at that point in time and they now have the, the ability to be able to do all these things. Now what? There's an emptiness. And that's what Sasson is saying is, is for what? So, no, so nobody else is telling you where to live and nobody else is telling you what to work at and no one is telling you what hours you should come in for? Okay, now that you've achieved all that. So what are you doing with that? What, 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 for what purpose? Are you part of a greater tapestry in life? Are you, are you advancing the cause of your people, your family, your nation, the world, humanity? That, that hasn't answered those questions. But a society driven by negative, negative freedom is a society which ultimately will be a society of decadence. That's just a very, very fundamental observation of, uh, of this. If you don't have it or, perhaps even a more negative level, somebody else or some other forces will give us reasons to live, right? And it's, it's, it's terribly sad if one looks at the numbers of drug users in the United States and in Western Europe Yes, there are terrible cartels which are making a lot of money and advancing the cause of this. But there are a lot of people who just don't know why they're alive. And they're trying to avoid the feeling of that pain. It's a very, very sad reality that we're seeing in the world. An inc- incredibly 
uh, an incredible increase in opioid usage and heroin usage. And now with the legalization of marijuana, there's a lot to think about in society, a society which only has a negative, ne a negative freedom, negative liberty. Well, for what? For what purpose? And he makes the observation as he turns inwards towards Israel. And he says it's interesting, if you look at the Israel na national anthem, what's the second paragraph? We say, Our hell hope is still not lost, quote in Yechezkel, fantastic. Um, um, we talk about, the 2,000 years. Liot, what's the purpose? Liot am chavshi to be. What was the point of this whole operation? What it was Imber um, thinking, and Atali hurts Imber saying, to be an am chavshi to be a free people in our land. Rav Sasson says a very interesting point in the last source here, source 7. He says, Bedor HaAcharon, in the last generation, Zakinu Baruch Hashem. He says, La'alot Eretz Yisrael, this is the first time in almost 2,000 years that Jews are no longer a subject of another, another government which has treated Jews horribly without accountability for thousands of years. We have sovereignty. And we're no longer paying taxes or being persecuted with relentlessly by other nations as they did. Whether it be Christian or Muslim. By the way, do you notice that he really appreciates this? So he's not, he's not decrying this. He's not an anti-Zionist. He's, he's deeply religiously appreciative of this moment in history. Omnam, nonetheless, he has his critique. We still, um, 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 he says, then there's, there still are challenges about the, the requirements of nations. Even though there are many external pressures, we are still very lucky to be here. Many, many Jews have tried from around the world to come to the land of Israel. And many of them said that the, the whole point of this whole experiment was, this whole, this whole mission was to be a free nation. And in truth, that is really a huge achievement. That we should not be being persecuted in Ethiopia, nor in France, nor in England, nor in America, wherever it is, that we should not be, uh, be beaten in the streets as Jews. So recently, just in the last few months here in New York City, I'm saying, you know, is, so just because we're Jews, we should not be, should not be harassed. That's Chofshi. Is that the last stop on the train? So why are we coming to Israel? Just so we shouldn't be persecuted. Just so we should arrive at the end of anti-Semitism. No, that's not the point. There's a higher calling for us as Jews. We're not trying to just escape that persecution. We have a purpose to fill this world, to be that light unto the nations. We have to be a holy nation to God. Or serving in the light of the king of the world. You cannot be contained in all the heavens or celestial spheres. 
So we need to start shifting away. And for the first few years, yes, that was a worthwhile goal, like Exodus was the first step. We needed to escape all the nations and be able to, and, and Israel in the 1940s and 50s was a fledgling state which was almost bankrupt, which was literally holding on by a thread for its existence. That was a, a terrifying moment. If you read and those who have experienced it, this was a, a terrifying moment. And yes, thank God, Israel is in a different state and place today. But now the question is, is after that, after the fight for existential existence and to be escaping all that persecution as some of the secular Zionists even thought about it, what's the next step? What's our goal? And it's worthwhile thinking about this in as a world which is moving away from this. We're in a world which is moving away from positive liberty, moving away from positive freedom as Isaiah Berlin looked at it. Society, secular society is moving away and has moved away from mandating anything which is moral. And in that void, people have lost their compass. They don't know where they're going. And all kinds of, of, of other forces are trying to galvanize um, those who don't necessarily have direction. We are very lucky as Jews to have a mission in life personally, individually, but also nationally. To understand that Israel should not simply become a, a liberal Western democracy. There's more to Israel than that than simply being a safe place or a safe haven for people to live in a in, a, in, a, in it. It has to be something, what are we doing? What is our charge? What is our mission in order to be able to do this? And yes, it comes with risks. Yes, it comes with fanatics and fundamentalists who are going to prescribe all kinds of things in the name of what that mission should be. But it's trying to be true and intellectually honest with what it is that the Torah asks of us to reestablish what our mission is. And when we have that mission, then ultimately we can reestablish what it means to be a nation. Not simply, be, uh, not simply floating down the river of life. Something which I think that society as a whole needs to think about, Be'ezra Hashem, which is the, one of the ingredients of nationhood, which is morality. Not just simply a place where we are safe. And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look in more specifics at some of what, the, what uh, Jewish tradition has said that morality should ultimately look like as well. Uh, Rabbi, so thank you very much for, for taking the time on this very complex topic.